Heavenly Father, thank you for this very precious church and for these wonderful couples who desire to follow your word and do things the way that they're laid out in scripture. And that would include their marriages would reflect your design uh, that, Father, they may taste of the blessings that you have for them as they seek to walk in obedience to your truth. And Father, empower them now that they would be able to do so and make progress, not that everything would change in a day or a week or even a month, but that they would become more like your son over time and that their marriages would truly reflect the relationship that you enjoy within the Trinity. And we pray, Father, that you again would be glorified, even using them as a witness to this world of the sweetness and the greatness of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. This morning is imperative, uh, truly in the truest sense. I'm going to give you six words in English and four words in Greek. That's it. All we're going to do is we're going to exposit, draw everything out, every theological truth that relates to this particular issue. It is so important. It is as important as love. It is as important and crucial as faith. It is absolutely essential to your sanctification. You'll not mature without these six words. You'll not overcome your sinful bent without these six words. You'll not become like Christ without this phrase. Your marriage will never be what God intended it unless you own it. The phrase is the key command in your marriage. The key command. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, that doesn't apply to you. If you're a believer and married to a believer, then this is the number one command for marriages. And, and sometimes it, it could feel so basic that you're thinking, oh, no, 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 no. You can't move beyond this command. This command is everything that what we've talked about and everything that you will be in Christ on planet earth is this command. The phrase is found in the letter to Ephesians. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. You probably already know what it is. Six simple words. It says this in 5.18b. B B meaning the second half of the verse. But be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. You say, Chris, this is not a charismatic church. Yes, I know. But this is essential in, in whatever church you are to your marriage. Now, I know you men, come on, would you give me a grunt? You men love power tools. Can I hear it from you? Uh, we, I love power tools. I, I don't know how I exist without power tools. You ladies, you love power tools too. They're called washing machine, a vacuum cleaner, maybe the electric screwdriver, whatever it is. You know what's interesting about a power tool though? And, and let's take vacuum cleaner for a second. You take that baby, you undo it, and you start rolling that thing back and forth in your entire household, but you don't plug it in. What good does it do? Answer? Nothing. It actually probably does some damage. It spreads more dirt. It does what it's not supposed to do. You need to plug it in, and you need to what? Turn it on. In the same way in your spiritual life and in your marriage, you are doing a lot of things if you're doing them in your own strength just like that. You're vacuuming a carpet without the vacuum cleaner being turned on. You desperately need to become dependent on the Spirit of God, and you need to understand what that means. 
When you're not filled with the Spirit, you are wasting your time and you are not accomplishing. And I believe that more Christians are guilty of this than we really want to give credit to. Uh, You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You cannot have a godly marriage without the resources of Christ. Lots of activity for Christ are going on today, but nothing is accomplished now or for eternity. The moment that you submitted to Jesus Christ in salvation, the moment He called you to Himself after choosing you in eternity past, the Holy Spirit came to live within you. There is no Christian here who does not possess the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you know it. It says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Is that plain enough? If you don't have the Spirit, you are not a believer. You don't have part of the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God. And yet I hear people pray, oh God, send your Spirit. Give me more of your Spirit. As if He came in doses. right? As if a person came in a dose. You either have the person of the Spirit or you don't have the Holy Spirit. Period. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? But you'll not experience His life in and through you unless you're filled with the Spirit. Now the same God who created the universe, let me get this right, and authored the Scriptures, ministered to our Lord while on earth, and continues to convict the world of sin, that same Spirit lives in you. That's a pretty powerful statement. And that Spirit was the one who regenerated you. He's the one who called you to faith in order for you to turn to Christ. He had to awaken you so that you could respond in repentance and faith. And at the point of salvation, He sealed you. You're stuck. If you're really a Christian, you're stuck. You can't get unchristianized. Okay, You're in it. He may call you home, but you're in Christ. He made you that way. He sealed you, securing you forever as a child of God. The evidence of that, of course, is assurance, which is lived out in your life. Side note. And He baptized you. He immersed you into the body of Christ, making you one with other Christians. So we're one. And we should experience that oneness. Jesus even prayed that you would be one like they are one. The Trinity is one, right? There should be a unique oneness in our midst. Now as a Christian, you're to be filled with the Spirit. It's the same Spirit who indwells you can now fill you. Say that again. The same Spirit who indwells you can now fill you. Every Christian is indwelt with the Spirit. Not every Christian, every moment, is filled with the Spirit. Are you getting the difference? Let me put it to you this way. To be indwelt means you have all the Spirit. To be indwelt means you have all the Spirit. To be filled means the Spirit has all of you. See the difference? See the difference? So what does being filled mean? And why is this so important to your marriage? I'm so glad you asked. You were just right there, bated breath. He tells us in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians teaches the church to simply state it. This is an oversimplification of Ephesians because Ephesians is actually pushing the Ephesians to see a more exalted view of who Christ is. I mean, the whole time he's saying, no, 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 it's even more wonderful than you think. He keeps pushing them that way. But in a practical way, it is to practice your position. Verses, uh, chapters 1 through 3 is your position in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 is your practice in Christ. And Paul wants you to walk. Now, when the Bible talks about walk, he's talking about lifestyle. Walk is another word for lifestyle. He says, I want your lifestyle to be this way. The way you live. Your lifestyle practice. And starting in chapter 4, he talks about a walk and he describes it a variety of ways. He says a worthy walk. And he wants it to be a loving walk. 
And then he actually says, I want your walk to be a wise walk, right? Don't you want to be wise? Come on, everybody. Amen. You want to be wise? Then to be wise, you need to be filled with the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. Are you with me? We're setting the context here for you who want to know the context, which you should. Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you live, your practical lifestyle. Not as an unwise man, but as a wise man. Making the most of your time. This is wisdom. You make the most of your time. Because the days are evil. I mean, you know, make sure you don't look back on your life going, man, I just wasted, 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 wasted. Then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What's the will of the Lord? Not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but, in contrast, be filled with the Spirit. Say that with me. But be filled with the Spirit. Speaking. What happens when you're filled with the Spirit? You speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, see the word subject there? That's actually in the Greek text. When you get to verse 22 and it says, wives, be subject to husbands, the verb be subject is not there. Do you know why? Because it's assuming, it's borrowing, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ as the verb that then starts the submission of a wife. In other words, this is, I want you to see the link here. The link is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the fruit of the Spirit, or being filled with the Spirit, the fruit of being filled with the Spirit leads us right into marriage. Right? It's so connected but it's the one command that we diss. We start jumping in, submit, submit, submit. Husbands, love your wives. And by the way, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, there are two commands, only two. Only two. They're both directed at men, both of them. There's no commands in that passage for women, not one. There's no command for you, ladies, sorry. But there are two commands for the men. You know what they are? Love your wives. There's actually a third exhortation in the passage, love your wife. So three times, twice he commands, once he exhorts, love your wife. Do you think, men, that you should be loving your wife? And you know what love is, right? Not ooey-gooey feelings. It's you sacrifice yourself. You're, you're, you're doing what Christ did. You sacrifice, whether you feel like it or not. You're sacrificing yourself for her. She's to come under your leadership and submission. She's to follow that, but you're to initiate. You're to initiate love. You're to initiate love. You're to initiate love. Men, are you supposed to initiate love? Yes. You're commanded to twice in that passage. It's actually mainly directed at men to initiate loving your wife. That's a wonderful thing to remember. I feel convicted by that. I think you should too. We're all in this together, and we need to initiate that constantly. How can I sacrifice for her? How can I die to myself for her? How can I lead this family so that God is glorified? And the only way, he says, in this context, to be wise before God, verse 15, is verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. So ask and answer. Let me ask and answer five questions about this moment-by-moment commitment. And here they are in your outline. And you need to know these because this is going to change your life not just as a married couple, but as a Christian. This is probably the most important message I will give to Christians in my life. You say, why are you saying that? That seems so overdramatic, Chris. You're being over Preachers do that all the time. They're overdramatic. Listen, there are two things that glorify God. Let me break it down. Make, make it super simple. Do you like simple? I do because I don't remember complex things. Super simple. There's two things that the Spirit of God wants to do. Two things. Only two. He wants you to come to Christ as a Christian he wants you to become like Christ as a Christian. He wants you to come to Christ 
and become a Christian. He wants you to become like Christ and live like Christ as a Christian. That's how you glorify God. You get it? Come to Christ, become like Christ. That's it. Every message that Micah preaches, every single one, every single one has only got two goals. Come to Christ, become like Christ. That's it. That's how we glorify God. That's what I preach. That's what he preaches. We're just preaching the Bible. And what's the Spirit of God want to do? Listen, to Christians, to non-Christians, he wants them to be convicted, and he has to do that and call them to himself, correct? To Christians, there's only one goal for the Spirit of God, just one. He wants you to become like Jesus Christ, period. You can see that in Romans 8. It is so clear, that's all he's trying to do. This is one of the most important commands in all of Scripture, and it's the only one that will make your marriage work. Only one that will make your marriage work. You cannot do Christian marriage on your own. You can't live the Christian life on your own. You can't do it. You have to depend on the Spirit of God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He has to live through us. He has to. Anything you do in the flesh is going to burn. Anything you do in the Spirit is going to be rewardable and it's going to bring joy, correct? It ha- you have to be in the Spirit. So let's deal with it. Why is it so crucial to you? I already gave you half the answers. Some Christians are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Reformed churches tend to focus on the Father. They do. Dispensational churches tend to focus on the Son. Charismatic churches tend to focus on the Spirit. The Bible says we worship a trinity. Okay? We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Three persons, yet one God. We need to know every person of the trinity. The Spirit is crucial to our sanctification and absolutely essential to your marriage. You cannot do everything we've talked about unless you get this right. That's why I'm focusing on what's attention here. You have to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So, understand, John MacArthur writes this, to resist the filling and control of the Holy Spirit is flagrant disobedience. And to deny or minimize its importance is to stand rebelliously against the clear teaching of God's Word. Don't you love that? That's just direct, isn't it? The only way my preaching right now is going to honor Christ is if I'm filled with the Spirit. And the only way that it's going to have any impact in your life is for you to be filled with the Spirit. That's how important the filling of the Spirit is. We've got to get this right. So why else be filled with the Spirit? Why is it important? Well, look at the fruit that it produces in verses 19 to 20. Okay, so we're looking at the context. From 19 to 20, be filled produces immediate praise. You're praising Him. Mutual ministry, inner joy in your own heart gratitude, you're thankful all the time when you're filled with the Spirit, and a servant's heart of submission. Is that, is that pretty significant? Pretty significant. Kind of makes you more attractive as a spouse. And then, important to us this morning, look at verse 22, all the way through chapter 6, the Scripture teaches being filled with the Spirit is the key command for a great marriage and for fruitful parenting. Think about it. Galatians 5. You know this passage, right? The filling of the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody know the fruit of the Spirit? Y'all know it, right? This is basic Sunday school stuff. Who doesn't want to live with somebody? Now, think about this, guys. You come home, and she's full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. And man, we're talking, you can't wait to get home, right? And wives, who wouldn't want this guy to come home who's filled with love? and joy and peace and pay are are you tracking with me the only way that's going to happen is the spirit of god the spirit of god dependent upon the spirit of god 
Now think about that person you want to marry if you're single. I mean, when I was a college pastor uh, of 800, gals would tell me what they're looking for in a guy. And I'd hear stuff like, oh, he's got to be 6'2". He's got to have blue eyes, blonde hair, really helps if he surfs, and drives a Porsche. You know, that would be good. And it was always funny, you know, because you're there a long time, what they ended up with. He's 5'1", bald, four eyes, and drives a bike. You know, so... Um, <laughs> man, if you want to die happy, find someone who strives to be filled with the Spirit. Every day. You want to die happy? Live with someone who loves Christ more than you. And wants to be demonstrating Christ through the filling of the Spirit. Who wouldn't want to live with somebody who's continually loving, continually joyful, continually kind? And more importantly, if you're not filled in the Spirit, the Bible says you're in the flesh, and if you're not living by His strength, you're living in your own strength. And meaning this, the only way to glorify God is to live by faith and please the Lord, and that is to be filled with the Spirit. One commentator adds this, unless a Christian is filled with the Spirit, quote, he will live in spiritual weakness, retardation, and frustration, and defeat. So it's crucial to you, correct? Would you agree with that? Would you embrace that? That it's absolutely crucial to you. Then secondly in your outline, what's required to be filled with the Spirit? Well, you've got to look at the context. We always love the context because we don't take things out of context. So you need to know what Paul has said in Ephesians 1-4 through so you can respond to what he says now in Ephesians chapter 5 properly. So what does he say and call for? What are the two basic requirements? Let me summarize them. First in your outline, genuine salvation, which is chapters 1-3. through and that means you were dead and God made you alive. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Right? You were a zombie, basically. You were a living dead person. And then Christ made you alive. And he is basically, you were dead to God. Now you're alive to him. You live for him. He's your first love. You love him more than any other relationship. He's first in your thoughts, first in your money, first in your time, in your heart. You follow him. You want to obey him. You please him over everyone else. Now that's not a super Christian. That's just an average believer. That's just what God does in your heart when he changes your heart. That doesn't mean you successfully live that out. It means you want to in all those areas. The point is you can't be filled with the Spirit unless you are genuinely saved. And so if you're like striving, 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 and it's somehow it's just not working, maybe you need to look and say, well, am I not saved? Am I not born again? Because you can't fulfill Ephesians 5.18 without being Ephesians chapters 1-3 through 3 being true in your life. So are you? Are you truly? It could be the reason why your marriage is not working. It could be. I'm not trying to raise fears or doubts or guilt. I'm just trying to say, look, if, if you've been striving in this area, but the nothing's happening, then maybe you need to go back and say, maybe I haven't really submitted to Christ. So then the other point would be that another requirement from the context would be that you are then involved in a church community. Ephesians 4 calls Christians to be equipped in the Word. And in verse 16, it summarizes it best when it says, "...from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part." Circle that. "...each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love." In other words, each individual part, that's you. You're a jigsaw puzzle in this body. And in this body, you're a part, you're a puzzle, and when you fill your part, you then give an image of who Christ is. And as we all do what we're supposed to do, then we end up pointing to Christ in a more realistic and dramatic way. And he's talking about you being an organ in the body and not a wart on the body. Okay? You know, you better be a spleen than a carbuncle. You know what I'm saying? You, you need to be involved, engaged, functioning, not just riding along the surface here. 
And so Ephesians says, unless you're seeking to obey the teaching of Ephesians 4, where you're connected, interconnected, we need the interconnectionness of the body to encourage us. Isn't it often that we run into another Christian who encourages us to be dependent upon the Spirit of God, right? We see and we hear about what God's doing in their life and we're convicted and motivated by that. We need the body to stimulate us. We do. And that's why he designed it that way. We've got a, we're very individualistic in America. Okay, we're very Rambo, we're very John Wayne, we're very independent. Uh, you know, we go into our, our uh, driveway, our garage door comes up, our car goes in, it comes down, we don't, I, you know, have to talk to anybody. And interesting enough, <clears throat> uh, when you become a Christian, you're now part of a community. And you belong to that community, and that community belongs to you. You're interrelated to that community, you need that community to become all that Christ wants you to be. And uh, it's absolutely crucial. So if filled is crucial... And it has some requirements, but it, two main ones. Then number three in your life, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it doesn't mean getting a zap. Okay, all of a sudden, woohoo! And all of a sudden you're jumping up and down and throwing yourself down, barking like an animal. That's not what he's talking about. It's, it's the opposite also. Uh, it, it's not the opposite of a mere joy, dry choice of your will. It's not that. It's not this zap of feeling. And it's not this mere dry choice of your will to grind out obedience to the Word of God, even if it kills you. It's not filling like you'd fill a hydro flask full of water. The Greek word for filled has three descriptive shade meanings. In other words, when you look at the word filled in the New Testament, it's used three different ways. And the first one is to be uh, filled with uh, uh, like the pressure of a wind that fills a sail of a sailboat. In other words, it's providing the thrust to move that sailboat along and the spirit of god is what provides the thrust to move you towards obedience that's what it does it's okay it's moving you that way it doesn't do all of it but it does move you in that direction it's having your sails filled up secondly the way that filled is used in the new testament is permeation or saturation like salt that permeates the meat and, and flavors it some of you have rubs that you do uh, you know um, anybody used to take airborne when you went on an airplane you know the, uh, or uh, anybody know what a alka-seltzer is remember that a long time ago they still avail you drop it in you know plop plop fizz fizz and it bubbles and then it saturates the water with medicine and then you drink the medicine it's supposed to be good for you are you tracking with me okay that's what filled is it saturates your life with the spirit of god that's what he's saying. He's, it has that element of saturation. To see his presence and his character, more of him, less of you. Right? He must increase, I must decrease. That, that kind of thing. The third way that the word, the Greek word filled is used in the New Testament is this idea of domination or total control. When it says, you've seen these passages, they were filled with anger. They were filled with fear. What they mean is that that emotion then dominated them. It controlled them. And so there's that element in the New Testament of a positive sense of being yielded in our lives to the Spirit of God so that our emotions and our thoughts and our wills are begin to under His direction, it begins to dominate totally in line with His will, which is found in His Word. So you get the same sense when you look at the context of the actual verse itself. So we're breaking this down, we're going broad, now we're going narrow, now we're even going more narrow. Look at Ephesians 5.18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now what you have there is two commands. You're saying, Chris, is this going to relate to my marriage? Yes, it is. Hang on. 
In contrast to wine controlling you or dominating you, you're to be dominated or controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying here. Some believe this is tied to pagan worship where they were getting drunk as kind of a pagan drink and it was a way of worship. And he says, don't do that, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's to be under the influence of alcohol and alcohol begins to control your behavior. So being filled with the Spirit begins to control your behavior in a way that you walk and think and respond to every aspect. And so there could be even, and this is probably forced, but uh, people um, drink to escape. And they want to forget their empty life. So Paul says, don't, don't get drunk, don't watch TV, don't eat, don't sleep to escape, don't hide under the sheets like some of you want to do, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying, here's the answer. This is the answer. The grammar, though, of being filled, the verb, now we're getting more narrow to the actual phrase itself, is actually more telling than anything else I've said already. So let's go through the grammar of the verb, to be filled. It makes it really clear. The literal rendering of the Greek be filled is be being kept filled. Be being kept filled. It's an imperative command, which means it's not an option. So the only way a marriage can enjoy Ephesians 5, 22 through you know, 33, and then parenting in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, is to be filled with the Spirit. Connectively, grammatically, it's established right there. It has to be happen. This is the command that makes all of this possible. Submission, headship, leadership, love, all the things that it talks about in Ephesians 5, which we haven't even looked at, is actually fulfilled by Ephesians 5.18, which is to be filled with the Spirit. So like faith, without it you can't please the Lord. And like love, without it you're merely making a lot of noise. That's how essential this is to your growth, to your marriage, and to your sanctification. Be filled with the Spirit as every moment, every action, every word, every attitude as you sit here and especially as you drive. Especially, one more time, especially as you drive. Just watch the parking lot after this conference today. You will see there's a filled driver, there's a flesh driver right there. Okay, so being filled is present tense all the time. Okay, it's to be all the time. So it's not only imperative, it's not only a command, but it's continual action. It's present tense. So for the believer, it's like marriage. Uh, in a marriage, you know, how long do you think my wife's going to like it if I were to say to her, I used to love you all the time? Do you think she'd really respond well to that? I used to love you, honey. Oh, it was deep. It was rich. No. Or, you know, honey, someday in the future, I'll love you again. You think she's going to go, oh, neat. Okay. What is she interested in right now? Present tense, all the time. I love you, not in the future, just in the past, but right now. I love you now, present tense. So that would be like the new husband, he gave his wife a mood ring. You ever seen those things? Kind of help him read his wife, you know? And it really worked. It turned green when she was in a good mood, and it left an ugly mark on his cheek when she was in a bad mood. So it all worked out. So, sorry. Be filled with the Spirit. Present tense, all the time. Not a one-time high. It's not a, some sort of weird thing that it's been turned into by other doctrines. It's, it's actually an ongoing, uh, not an emotional experience. You don't have to, like, oh, i got to feel it. i got to feel emotional. No, you, you step out in obedience and dependence upon the Spirit of God. It's all the time. Well, who's it for? Well, it's plural, so that means it's everybody. Be filled. Be being kept filled is for everyone. Every wife, every husband. It means you all, like in Texas, right? It's one of those verbs. Y'all, okay? 
And every Christian in the Ephesian church and everyone here, not just the missionaries, not just the pastors, but every person in the church, it's crucial for you to be filled in your marriage. But how can I be filled? Now, this is the fun. you got to tune in. Some of you tuned out. Tune back in. Look up here. Okay. How does it work? This is where it gets fun, helpful, and tricky. The verb is my favorite verb in the New Testament. Yes, I do have a favorite verb. I'm that kind of geeky guy. I have a favorite verb, and it's always an imperative passive. And this is one of them. This is an imperative passive. The voice here is passive. If it were active, you would do it. If it were middle, it must be, in a sense, you would act upon yourself to do it. It's passive, which means you can't do it. It has to happen to you. Now, how do you like that? Now, think with me. This takes a little brain power. You've just been given a command by God, but it has to happen to you. How do you like that? That's the Christian life. That's why he states it the way he does. I mean, God gives you a crucial command, but in giving it, he tells you you can't do it. So what's he telling us through the Apostle Paul? Well, in order to be filled with the Spirit, you're to yield to the Spirit. You're to desire the Spirit. You obey the Spirit. You expect the Spirit. You respond to the Spirit. You don't control. Are you in charge or is God in charge? Answer? Thank you. You don't (laughs) run the show. You don't tell the Spirit of God, do this, do this, do this, do this, do do what I want, do what I want. You respond and respect to His sovereignty, correct? So he commands you to do it, but you have to, in a sense, desire him to work through you. He's God, you're not. The indwelling Spirit fills those who submit, who yield, who depend, who desire him, and then obey his word. Now, my baseball glove, okay? Uh, You guys still have your baseball glove? Worst moment in my life was uh, about five years ago, my baseball glove that I've had my entire life was stolen. And, 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 you know, guys, I, every guy in this room understands, the, maybe some of you gals too, the, the absolute act. You spent your whole life working that baby. You know what I mean? So it fits you. It's part of your nature. It's who you are. And I'm a, uh, I'm a, a, a right fielder and a third baseman. Okay, that's, that's what I play. And, and, I, and I love baseball. I love baseball. I love to play baseball. And so when you play baseball, though, and my glove is sitting there, just imagine it's not stolen. And I say to my glove, play baseball. Does my glove play baseball, yes or no? No, it doesn't. It has to be filled with the what? The hand, right? I know, you're going, Chris, this is so basic, I'm insulted. <laughs> Listen, interesting enough, in the same way, uh, the Spirit of God has to be, in a sense, in you, working through you for you to function the way you're supposed to function as a Christian. John MacArthur writes this, a Christian can accomplish no more without being filled with the Spirit than a glove can accomplish without being filled with a hand. Uh, Spirit-filled people learn what God wants them to learn in His Word. They yield themselves to the Spirit of God and dependently obey. They become instruments the Spirit can use to display His character in words and actions. You desire it. Um, When my grandsons were younger... You know how uh, I like the, when kids get to that point when they just learn to walk? You know how they walk with their arms up like this? I call it the Dr. Zaius walk. You know, the, you know, they kind of do that. Well, when, you, when they start doing that and you walk with them, they, 
they, they, they put their hand in your hand and you walk with them. And so when it gets a little rough, you kind of help them over the tough rocks, right? Stuff like that. And when it's impossible, what do you do? You just, just kind of carry them over. Listen, that's what it means to live the Christian life. Every moment of every single day, your hand is like this, right? You're dependent. You need to be 100% dependent. The moment you stop being dependent upon the Spirit of God, you're doing it in your own strength. You have to go, Lord, I can't do this. You must do this through me. Now, let me explain that a little bit farther so you don't think that I'm some weirdo, all right? Or that we fall into some heresy. Spirit-filled Christians are those who raise their hand, grab onto their Father's hand in order to walk in this world. And that's clear. Galatians 2.20, one more time. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now which live in the flesh, I live by faith and a large measure of faith is dependence. The largest understanding of faith, it's not the complete and total understanding of faith, but faith is dependence, dependence in the Son of God. So he says, I live by faith, depending in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So back to Ephesians 5. I'm trying to explain this, get the full picture here. The verb is to be filled is passive. You can't do it. It must happen to you. But you put yourself in a position to be filled. You live in dependence. You live desiring to be filled, and then you step out in obedience to His Word. I like the way Spurgeon did it. You can't have a really good sermon without a Spurgeon quote. And as he set, stepped up to his pulpit to preach God's Word, and this is true, every single Sunday he climbed a circular pulpit. And every, he, te- he says this in his biography. Every time, every step he took, he said this. Audibly, I believe in the Spirit. 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 Because he knew that unless the Spirit of God energized what he was about to do, it would fall on nothing. It would be worthless. It had to be energized by the Spirit of God. Filled, controlled as you proclaimed God's Word. Christian, you and I are are being kept filled. Now, how does this work out in everyday life? Well, let me explain that. Number four on your outline, how can you be filled with the Spirit every moment? Every moment. Let me encourage you. Again, this is the number one command in your marriage. This is the most important thing you can do. Everything's going to change communicatively. Everything's going to change physically. Everything's going to change budgetarily once you start being filled with the Spirit. Encourage you. I want you to write down P-A-S-S-S. It's an improper spelling of the word pass. I'm going to give you a hall pass to the spiritual life. I'm going to give you a hall pass to the spirit-filled life. I'm going to give you a hall pass to a great marriage. Okay? P-A-S-S-S. You're going to have these three points. I love acrostics because I can't remember a thing, but I can remember this any context. I can actually preach the sermon without notes. This is so vital to you that you would get this. I want you to get this in your marriage first and then in your Christian life second, but I'm telling you, this is crucial. This is the process of sanctification. How are we sanctified, Chris? I'm going to teach you right now how you're sanctified, how you then are filled with the Spirit in such a way that then all of a sudden you offer these things to your spouse and your, your relationship becomes a giving relationship. People start to marvel about it. They become overwhelmed by it because it's incredible. They've never seen anything like it. And that's what it can be if you're filled with the Spirit. I mean, th- this used to be talked about and, and somehow, some way in Reformed churches, we've moved away from the Spirit of God. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's the Trinity! Okay, and this is truth that's everywhere in the New Testament, Okay. Right? Are you with me on this? He sealed you. He, he fills you. He indwells you. Are you with me? Okay, so this is stuff we need to know. 
So today you get the pass. Here's the pass. First in your outline, dwell on a passage. P is passage. So I'm going to go through this and explain this to you. Okay, so it says in Ephesians 5, 18 and 20, Do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks. <gasps> wow! Now turn over to Colossians 3.16. Now, side note, Ephesians and Colossians are parallel books. Paul wrote them in prison. He probably wrote them very close to one another. So when you study one, you've got to study the other because they parallel. And so you want to see what the parallel passage... Well, the parallel passage of Ephesians 5.18 is Colossians 3.16. And you know that verse as well. And it says this. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now watch. Listen. With all wisdom, admonishing with one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing in thankfulness with your hearts to God. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds familiar to you because the same fruit of being filled with the Spirit is also the fruit that is being let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The fruit is very, very similar. So what's he saying there? That being filled with the Spirit is very similar to letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Part of being filled with the Spirit, part of yielding to Him, is to have the Word of God literally, when it says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell, that word richly dwell means, ready, write it down, be at home. He wants the Word of God to be at home. You know when you go home and you sit in a particular place and you go, oh, I'm home. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what he's saying. He wants the Word of God to go, oh, yeah, this fits. You're at home in your heart. Your life, my life, your thoughts, his thoughts are to be centered around the Word of God, saturated with the Word, chewing on the Word, focusing on the Word. Listen, see, I got glasses. See them? Okay, you're all fuzzy now. These are trifolds too, so it's really, they've really gone downhill. All right? I put them on, I can see you. That's what he's talking about when the Word of God is richly dwelling within you. It's like I look at the life, I look at all of life through the lens of His Word. I don't look about my opinion, my feelings, my thoughts. I look at it through His Word. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell. You want to be filled with the Spirit. It's got to be centered in the Word of God. There is never a time you're filled with the Spirit when you're living contrary to the Word. He is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth will always honor the truth and He will not honor the non-truth he honors truth and, and, and attending a great church can help but it cannot force the word of god to be at home in your heart your marriage must learn to chew on be saturated in the word every day in order to be filled with the spirit probably moves beyond a verse for the day it, it's that you're in the word you're making choices to think on and dwell in god's word every single day it's like a tea bag and i know not a lot of you are in tea i, I one gal came up and she had tea and a biscotti and i thought that was weird um but um biscotti is for coffee it's not for tea Ugh. anyway it's just an opinion but as you have this tea you know when you have tea and it sits in water, and, and you take that tea bag, and you kind of, or that little container that's got the tea leaves, and you're moving it up and down, and up and down, and up and down. Why? Because it gets saturating the water, right? And that's what he's talking about. He wants the Word of God to saturate your life. Saturate your life. You need to know the Word, live the Word, think the Word as you approach every decision, every comment, every attitude, every choice that you make. It's so saturating your everyday life. It no longer looks like you, but it looks like the Spirit of God. The words, the lens you look at, uh, your trials through your friends at, your events, your spouse. You live 
by the design of Scripture, you talk about that. You ask, honey, what does the God's Word say about this trial? That's the first thing out of your mouth if you're a spiritual leader. You're, saying, you're not saying, do what I say, honey. You're saying, let's figure out what God says. Let's ask questions. Let's be humble enough to even ask somebody who may know more than we do and find out what they say and, and as they share God's Word because we want to do what God's Word is. How can God's Word guide us in this decision in everything? You need to be saturated to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be focused on a passage. That's why P's there. Passage. Bible, 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 Bible. It's got to be the lens or you're not going to be filled with the Spirit because the Spirit of God only honors the Word of God. And I'm going to show you how that works out. Secondly, be aware. Be aware. Now, I made an acrostic. Be aware. Another way of saying being aware is be, be aware that you're dependent all the time. Okay? You could write that down. Be aware that you have to be dependent all the time. Be aware. Now, the passive voice tells you you can't do this. Amen? Oh, please. Amen? Amen. Okay. You can't do it. So just like only Christ can live the Christian life through you and God can only glorify God through you. By the way, you know that, right? you got to get this down. Only God can glorify God. So the only way that God can glorify God is through you. Your life only glorifies God when God is through you. Only God can do that. Only God is perfect enough to bring himself glory. It has to be through you. So you need to be aware of who you are, who God is. At best, you're a vessel. At best, you're a vessel. And there's some really humbling things about vessels that I won't go into. Where God works through you. You realize that, right? You don't have to turn there, but I want you to write this verse down if it's not there in your notes. Galatians 6.3. Because I really want to build up your self-esteem. I'm really big about self-worth. I'm really big about that. And Paul wraps up his letter in Galatians, and he really wants to build you up by saying this to you, Galatians 6.3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is what? Nothing. nothing, he deceives himself. You are nothing. I'm nothing. Feel built up yet? New Testament tells us to die to self, surrender daily, put no confidence in the flesh, your thoughts, our strength, our ideas, even our abilities. Be aware of the fact that you're nothing. I could go on and on about it. I could actually preach for another two hours about how nothing you are. Do you realize this? I live this way. I do. I'm 64, but I live this way. I know in 50 years, no one's going to even remember who I am. Nobody. Right? You put your hand in the bucket of water, you pull your hand out, there's nothing, no impact at all. Only one life soon passed, only what's done for Christ will what? Last. That's it. That's it. And that's humbling, isn't it? You're a vessel. You have the ability to put the sovereign God of the universe and His immense character on display. What an incredible privilege. Incredible. That's what makes life worth living. You're nothing. Christ is all. And God often allows trials and pains and unbelievable hurts in your life to remind you just how dependent you are. And Jesus could not have been more pointed in John 15.5 when He said, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Got a big theme going on here. Nothing. Nothing you and I will ever do will count for eternity unless two things are true. Are you ready? One is, it has to be done in the power of the Spirit of God. If it's done in your strength, it doesn't count for eternity. If it's done in God's strength, it counts for eternity. Secondly, 
It's got to be done for God's glory. If it's done for your glory, it counts for nothing. If it's done for God's glory, it counts. So common things, driving, cleaning the house, uh, raising kids, uh, working at your job that is thankless and nobody cares. If you're in the Spirit, it counts for eternity. If it's done for His glory, it counts for eternity. If it's done for you and your eyes are on yourself and it's done in your own strength, it counts for nothing. Are you getting it? It's pretty simple stuff here. So understand, be aware of who you are and who God is. Be aware that it's Him through you. Be aware you can't do anything in your own strength. Be aware that you're to be filled with the Spirit every moment, with everything. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you know it. Whether then you eat or drink, the most common thing, eat or drinking, even lifting a glass of water to your lips, whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. So it's God through you via His Spirit who brings Himself glory. Don't grind out your obedience. Depend on the Spirit of God by His Word. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't wait for a feeling. One more time. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't act upon your will and dependently obey. So I want you to put down. This is, this is the opposite of do, 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 do. You hear a lot of this moralistic preaching. I don't like it. Do this, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be, you know, godly, you'll vote for Trump or whatever. Okay, so understand. Do, 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 do. That's, no, ah, ah. It's D period, O period. It's not do, it's D period, O period. You know what that stands for? Depend and obey. Depend and obey. You want to understand sanctification. Now, there are two kinds of sanctification. We're going to quickly dismiss one. One of them is the moment you are saved, God set you apart for himself. Like you have a curio at your house. It's like, this is really a precious thing in our family. We're setting this aside. This is for ours. It's ours. Our family. It's our. God said, you're mine. I'm set, you're a precious commodity. I'm setting you apart. So I sanctified you. There's another kind of sanctification which we really focus on, which is the active part where we participate. There is a participation element. This is how you do it. You depend and obey. Now let me explain it to you. Remember the little kid holding his hand up? So you're depending do you say, well, I'll just wait for a feeling? Do I just stand there and wait for the next bus for heaven? What do I do? You depend, and then you exercise your will towards the Word of God, which has saturated your life, and you step out by an act of your will in obedience. I depend and obey. I depend on Him and obey. I step. I, I don't wait I'm waiting for a feeling. I'm not waiting for an emotion. I go, I know what the Word of God says, so I'm going to obey while I'm depending. Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I'm depending and I'm going to step out and obey. You getting it? It's all of Him, and if it's not all of Him, it doesn't count, doesn't work, but you step out and exercise your will according to the truth of God's Word. Once you do that, you're putting yourself in a place where you're now being filled with the Spirit. And for the Spirit to energize what you're doing. Does that make sense? And glorify Himself. Are you getting it? You do exercise your will, but you do so first dependently. Lord, I can't. I'm relying on You. But now I step out in obedience. That's the most important thing you can do in your marriage is every single day, Lord, I can't, I can't love that guy. He is such a creep sometimes. He comes home and he stinks and I hate smell. And, you know, whatever, okay? You can go, but you know what? I can depend and I can obey. So I can welcome him and love him and have resources to care for him. And I can come home and go, you know what? I come home and it's chaos. These kids are running everywhere. They're painting on the walls. I don't, what's wrong with her? Her hair looks terrible. What's going on here? <laughs> you can depend and obey. 
and go, I'm going to love her. I'm going to come in and be a blessing to this family. I'm going to find out. I'm going to bring some order to the chaos, tovu wabohu, you know, and, and I'm going to love in this situation and care for what's going on here, listen to her heart and understand her, and we're going to be one in this process, but I'm going to depend and obey. Are you getting it? It's not do, 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 do. It's I got to rely on the Spirit of God, but I also need to exercise my will toward the Word of God. And the more mature you become, you become more refined on what God's Word says, and so you become more ready to step out in obedience, in dependence upon the Spirit of God. That's how it works. That's what the passive verb means. He says, I'm commanding you to obey. Okay, i got to obey. Dependently. But I have to obey and step out in independent obedience. D period, O period. This is life-changing, friends. This will change your sanctification, change your church, and change your marriage. Absolutely vital. So, pass. P-A-S-S to the Spirit-filled life is a passage. A, a P, a passage. A, aware that you're dependent. Now let's go to S really quickly. Deal with all known sin. So deal with all known sin. Uh, he is called the Holy Spirit. You would expect that the Holy Spirit's sensitive to sin. Would you agree with me? You start reading your Bible, you'll read two passages. They're pretty clear. I'm going to kind of summarize this quickly. When you read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And you were grieving the Spirit because you were speaking certain ways and, and disobeying Him in this way. And really what he's talking about is sins of commission. You know what I mean by commission? You committed them. The Bible said, don't do this, and you did it. And so you disobeyed Him, and by doing so, you grieved the Spirit. Now, God's grieving is different than our grieving. It's pure, it's right. But what, when your you know, kids do something that you, know, you told them not to do and it caused themselves harm and you're grieved by that, you kind of get a feeling and a sense of what that grief is, right? So he says, deal with that. Confess your sin, repent of your sin. And then he says in Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. The Thessalonians early in the church were refusing for the prophetic gift to be spoken in the church because they were concerned that it would not be truth. They had noble reasons why, but they were preventing the preaching of God's Word in the church when the, church, the Bible wasn't formed yet. And so these prophets were speaking, and they're stopping them, and he says, you're quenching the Spirit. The word quench actually literally means put the fire out. And so when you don't obey what you're commanded to do, like love or forgive or whatever, you're quenching the Spirit. Sins of omission. Sins of omission, where you're not doing what God commands you to do, like forgive. So you're quenching the Spirit, which means you're putting the fire out. Now, that's why some churches, you're going, man, they believe in doctrine here, but they seem dead. Why do they seem dead? Because they're grieving or quenching the Spirit. That's why. Because they're not dealing with sin. They're not obedient to what they need to be doing. And so what happens is, and again, no one lives this perfectly, but you're striving to deal with sin, which means you confess it. What is confession? 1 John 1, 9. It's I agree with you, God, that it's you're holy and I'm not, that it's my responsibility and not yours. You're, you're relieving him of all responsibility. And repentance, you know that, what that means, correct? First, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 10, and 11, it means that you've changed your mind Okay, and you go, nope, I've changed my mind, this is wrong, and I'm turning from that. It issues forth in behavior. So you change your mind, issues forth in behavior, so now you're saying, I'm going to pursue Christ and not pursue this sin. I'm, I'm moving away. I turn uh, you know, from idols to serve the living and true God, First Thessalonians 1.9. So that's all that process. So you're dealing with sin. Are you getting with it on this? You cannot be filled with the Spirit and not deal with sin. And when He brings sin to mind, you've got to deal with it. 
you got to confess it. you got to repent of it. It's got to be a part of your life. So P-A-S is passage aware, dependent awareness. You need to be dependent. S, deal with all known sin. And then the last S-S is serve and share. Serve and share. You say, why serve and share? Well, very briefly, when you study the word spiritual gifts in the New Testament, the literal rendering of spiritual gifts is of the Spirit. The Spirit of God gifted you at the point of salvation for you to express Christ in a unique way. One more time, I can never do what God intended you to do. You can never do what God intended me to do. But I put Christ on display a certain way, and you put Christ on display a certain way, and as we all do that, then we see more of Christ and less of us, correct? But you need to be about that process. Now, we have a lot of Christians today that never serve. And that is damaging to God's glory, and it's damaging to the health of the church, and it's damaging to your own spiritual life because it's not about you just getting what God gives you, but you serving as God then works through you, you get. As you give away, you receive. Does that make sense? As you serve, you experience the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the fruit of God in a variety of ways. You need to be about the process of giving yourself away in the way that God intended, whether that's teaching, serving, mercying, you know, whatever. And you go, oh yes, I'm, I'm so merciful. Let me help you. Okay, you can figure out over time how you're gifted. If you go, I'm a leader. I'm a leader. I'm gifted to lead. And you look behind you and no one's following you, guess what? You're not a leader. Okay, you go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Mrs. Mercy. I'm just, I'm just so merciful. You go to the hospital, and when you leave the hospital, and they're like, I want to die after you go, you're not gifted in mercy. Trust me. Trust me. It always ends up being that people are going, yeah, you should be doing that more. Uh, early on in my, even my ministry, my wife would watch me minister, and she goes, you need to do more of that. That was amazing. Now, this other stuff, not so good. Okay, but this, this was amazing. You need to do this. So I'd listen to that voice, you know, and you listen. I, I trained guys and interns, and they're all going, this is what you need to do with your life. Early on in my faith, people know how you're gifted. They just, if you just invite them, they'll tell you. Over time, and you go, no, that's not you. No, please don't do that no more, okay? <laughs> but it could be you. Now, listen, here's the secret. So not only are you serving, but sharing. When you read Acts, and you read it, you go, all of a sudden, they're filled with the Spirit of God, and then they're sharing with boldness. Somehow, there's a connection to the filling of the Spirit and the proclaiming of the gospel. So it's interesting to me, to, within the context of the church, you're to serve your spiritual gift. Outside into the world, you should share the gospel, correct? And that's really what we're to be about. That's what the Spirit of God's doing. So we want to be about what the Spirit of God wants to do, which is within the context of the church, manifesting himself to other Christians so you become like Christ, and then in the world, manifesting the gospel so that people come to Christ, correct? So be about what the Spirit of God is doing. And as you do that, you'll be filled with the Spirit. So P-A-S-S, -S, passage, be aware you're dependent, deal with all known sin, and then serve and share. Now, one point about serving and sharing that you got to get, and I, I think most of you in the room get it already, so I'm so encouraged by this. The Christian life is not a bucket where you collect all the blessings. Gimme, 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 gimme. I need more, I need more, I need more. Fill me up, fill me up, fill me up. We all have that cry of our heart. But that's really not the purpose of the Christian life. The Christian life is not a bucket, it's a hose. You take that fire hose, you and you just pour out God's blessing through service and sharing to other people, and guess what? You drink your fill. You're overwhelmed by it. Doesn't mean you're not tired. 
Doesn't mean you're not, you know, you know that you're exercised, that, you, that it, it costs you something, but your heart will explode with joy. I'm telling you, you're meant to be givers and not just getters in this spirit-filled life. So passage, be aware you can't do this in your own strength. Confess all known sin. Repent of it. Serve others in the body. Share the gospel of the lost. That's the past. What are the results of being filled with the Spirit? Let's wrap this up. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, 18 and verse 19, it says mutual ministry will happen as you're filled with the Spirit. Speaking one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Inner joy, singing and making melody with your hearts of the Lord. Gratitude, verse 20, always giving thanks for the things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then verse 21, submission. We're able to come under authority and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, those are the results of being filled with the Spirit. And that lays the foundation for an incredible marriage. To submit, to come under your husband, to love your wife. And, and both of those involve denying of self. Understand, you say, oh, uh, what, what's this you know, leadership thing and the submission thing? Listen, you die to self by submitting. You die to self to love your wife. And that transforms life. Listen, let's wrap it up. Being filled with the Spirit will focus your life on exalting Christ. It will. Being filled with the Spirit will focus your life on exalting Christ. If you've been a Christian over a decade, you can fake it on the outside, but you can't hide your heart from God's Spirit. And as you're filled with the Spirit, being dependently obedient to the Word of God, the Spirit in you has just one goal to make you like Christ. And Romans 8, 29 declares what the Spirit is doing. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. He wants you to become like Jesus Christ. That's your goal. That's your target. And that's what the Spirit of God wants to do. And as you're filled, dependent upon the Spirit of God, listen, you start every day with a dependency on the Spirit of God, your marriage is going to prove. Then you start working out all day long to be filled with the Spirit of God. Dramatic things are going to happen in all your relationships. Trust me. It's dramatic. And we've lost it in Reformed churches. We have. We need to regain the importance of the filling of the Spirit of God. We're not meant to live the Christian life in our own strength. We're meant to depend and obey. We're meant to. There's no microwave process. It takes time. The ultimate wife and the amazing husband will be the one who seeks every day, every moment to be filled with the Spirit. Now, how do you unlock that? Well, secondly, in your outline, be filled with the Spirit is one of the keys to overcoming sin. The amazing thing that you find in your Scripture is when you see Galatians 5.16 says, what I say, walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk is a lifestyle. Get this. You're filled, 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 filled. Throughout the day, you develop a walk. When you develop a walk, it says, you will overcome, he says, it's the Bible, the desire of the flesh. You'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. You're saying, I'm having a real hard time overcoming this sin. Then be filled with the Spirit. Every day, dependently walk, uh, you know, be filled with the Spirit. Then you'll develop a walk of the Spirit. You'll overcome the desire of the flesh. I didn't write that. God did. So understand what that means. Moment by moment, filling leads to a lifestyle walk which empowers you to overcome sin. Are you going to ever be perfect before heaven? Answer, no. And you're going to stumble, bumble, and, and you know, so you're going to get to be 60 and you're going to go, wait a minute, these are the sins I battled with when I was 18. What happened? What happened? You know, and God's going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to purify you a little deeper. We're going to scrape some of that out a little bit more. It never goes away. Until you, that's why we're longing for heaven. That's why we want to get there, right? We want to get there. But in this process, he's going to purify us and make us more like his son. And then 
the Bible, clearly, it being filled with the Spirit results in reward. Again, it's those things that you do for His glory. And I'm talking about everyday tasks will bring Him glory as, uh, again, it has to be in His strength and it has to be for His glory. And that only, only can happen when you're filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit requires salvation. You can't do this. It is the number one command in your marriage. Again, one more time, imagine a couple that they become more and more known for ongoing love, ongoing joy, ongoing self-control, ongoing kindness. I would love ongoing patience. You got six kids at home, ongoing patience, ongoing patience. You're going to need the Spirit of God to make this work. But wow, if you can gain some ground in this area over time, I guarantee you it will change the nature of your walk with God, your relationship with others, and particularly that marriage. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time. We pray that you would be glorified by this time in your word. We pray that there might be more and more of the believers in this room who are practicing being filled with the Spirit and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty. Thank you, Chris. Yep. I'm going to now fire away with a number of questions that uh, the audience have, <laughs> have asked. And so... First question, real practical. What commentary on the Song of Solomon do you recommend? <laughs> you know, honestly, I have about six of them. Um, one of my great weaknesses is remembering books and authors. Um, I, I know them by their look. Uh, I'm just built a little differently. So the specificity of those authors, I, I, I even am afraid to, um, to name one um, because... Uh, I think that the guys here can help you with that. Uh, Mike, you, you got one that comes to mind? Yeah, see, I'm in the same boat. I, I've got them here clearly. I can see them on my shelf. I know what they are. I can almost make a... I, I, one, one might be Gramaki. One might be Dillo. Uh, I, I don't think Dillo's is all that good. I, I think there's some other ones that are just really right on. They're just solid commentators. And, um, it, you know, if it really becomes an issue, I'll, I'll actually send them to Micah and to Art and you can get them from them. But I... I'm, I'm afraid to actually mention them because I should have taken a picture and said, oh yeah, they are here and this is so and so and so and so. Um, but they're actually just in the last four years, there were like three that were super solid guys that wrote really good commentaries on Song of Solomon. So it's not hard to find. It's just you want to make sure you get a good one where the guy's, you know, he believes in authorial intent. You know what I'm saying when I say that, authorial intent? The author's intended message, not spiritualizing it, not reading into the text, just, just what he says. So I, that's a bad answer. Uh, I don't know oh, what Chris, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Just, just for the sake of the cameras, so that you're looking. Ah, okay. All right. I know uh, yesterday I was speaking over here, so. Okay, so yeah, uh, can I leave that one blank? I, sure. I, I really don't want to say uh, until I actually can say. So, okay. Uh, forgive busy- for that weakness. That's really hard. With the busyness of a newborn now, my husband and I are finding it hard to make time to grow in the Word. Playing video games is a part of life for him with which takes up hours of the day and with zero gain and may even cause him to be angry. 
how do I encourage them to detach or minimize the playing time so that we can build upon the marriage biblically so that we are preparing ourselves for parenthood? This has been a, a go-to relaxing or winding down channel for him pre-marriage. <laughs> you know, these questions are very common. You know, my husband won't lead. Uh, my husband plays video games. Uh, I, I was actually, I don't know, it was about 15 years ago, I was just shocked that men would go do that. And I, I, I understand the, the relaxed nature of just trying to unwind from work. Um, I, I think that it's healthy in anything that we do to uh, time ourselves. And to, uh, we, we used to, even with our kids, um, video games were just becoming an issue, you know, Pong. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's actually when I was in college. In my, my first year in college, all of a sudden there showed up a Pong machine. We thought, whoa! Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, we all set a timer for our kids. So if we did let them do it, it was always 30 minutes. Um, you know, I need to relax. Well, yeah, to a point. Uh, I'm not sure that you're always relaxed after you play a video game. <laughs> I didn't kill Zelda. Oh, no, you know. Uh, I got to get to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so I think that there should be a, a structure where there is a, I, I, I'm really, really, Truthfully, I think it's okay to have routines where you unwind. Um, I think that it's really important to develop habits, though, that you can build on. And so it might not be that's the first thing you do when you come home. So that might be that you want to always manifest your priorities, not just talk about them. You know the difference between that? Oh, yes, my wife's my most important relationship next to Jesus. And then when you come home, you diss her. You don't even, you don't even acknowledge her. You just go and sit and play video games. I'm like, that's not healthy to me. You want to manifest your priority going, how's your life? How's your home? What's going on? Let's talk. Um, and then I think you want to limit your escapism. Um, this is not for you. Okay, so when I say these things, it sounds like I'm stating a fact or everybody needs to do this. I made certain applications that I had to do. I'm, I know my personality enough to know that I'm obsessive. My grandson has it. My, my, really, my, my firstborn grandson, he's obsessive. Like, he starts a Lego set, it's like all of life shuts down for everybody. We, we actually knew this going in. This is the funniest thing ever. So, we, um, I brought him a, 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 a frost, not a frosty, a, a, a smoothie. A really nutritious smoothie. He and my other grandson, and I'm, I'm having a little acai bowl. And we're just enjoying our time here. And he's about one inch into it. It's 16 ounces, one inch into it. And he looks up and he goes, I got to get back to work. And I'm like, I've never seen this in a child. Okay, so this is, he loves this smoothie, loves it. But he's got to get back to his Legos. We gave him a set, uh, Imperial Walker, you know. I mean, it was a big deal. And so he, I got to get back, get back to work, meaning I got to get back to Legos. So then we're saying goodbye, and our, our goodbye routine in Hawaii is always that there's a little family photo, and he's always really good. The kids are great. We always get smiles, whatever. So he takes the, the two of us and the two grandkids. We take a picture, and then another friend comes over and says, hey, you want to take a picture of all of you, you know, Matt, Danielle, Riker, Finn, so the parents and the kids and us, and, we take the, and so we're trying to call the kids back. And Matt <laughs> Riker goes, what now? You know, and, 
And it was, he didn't say it with massive disrespect, but it was like, you're keeping me from my Legos. Don't you understand? Um, and we laughed and laughed and laughed, and we thought it was hysterical because it really, he's obsessive. I have the same personality. So I knew that when I got married, I would have to give up golf. And I know for some of you that is like I just spoke heresy. <laughs> I got it. But I did. I said, I'll take it back up. I had a wicked game going as a 22-year-old. I mean, and I thought, maybe I, I, I love this game. I love it. I'll pick it up when the kids are out of the home. And I made that decision because I knew that if I stayed with it, it would be because I only have one day off a week and because it takes four hours if you're going to do 18, honestly. Some of you could do it in three. Great, great for you. Um, uh, but I couldn't do it. And so I, I just stopped. And then I picked it back up and, and my game is nowhere. I mean, it just went, and I went, well, I guess that was, but I, I don't regret it, but I knew that because of the way my personality was that it would be damaging, and Gene would be resentful, and when I had that day off, it needed to be our day, our day, because I only have one, I really do, I only have one, it's Friday, still to this day, it's Friday, I work Saturday, I work all day Sunday, every day, I work a lot of hours, and I don't resent that, I like it, but that day off has got to be her day, you know what I mean, their day. And I, I, it doesn't mean I wasn't involved Monday through Friday with the kids. I was in all the routines and everything, but I went right back to work. You know, they went to bed, I went, I went right back to work. And if Gene needed me, I was there. You know, I, I, we, we tried to cultivate that, but I knew obsessively that it would be a bad thing. And so I gave up backpacking, I gave up golf, I gave up a few things because I knew I would wreck my family. And I think for some of us, we need to say, okay, maybe I don't need to give up video games, but maybe I should temper them. Maybe I should ratchet it back. Maybe I should give 30 minutes to it. You know, when the kids get a little bit older, some of them are not going to be able to control themselves like you can. And so they need to see you control the video game. They need to see that you're not obsessed by them and that you can shut it down. Um, and then you want to always, like I said, manifest your priorities. So that would be my encouragement would be, you know, really assess, is that really necessary? Is that really, the, you know, oh, this is causing me to relax? I, I doubt that because uh, they tend to wind me up and most of the guys that I disciple that winds them up and so uh, it, you, you, I'm not saying no I'm just saying don't let it consume you or you know you say once a week I go on a, a video fest from you know 8 o'clock p.m. to 10 p.m. and nobody bothers me that's fine too well your wife goes to sleep or she you know hangs out with her girlfriends or whatever I don't know I'm just saying you agree but you don't let it become something of an issue and, it, it, you know, and sometimes, you know, you want to you wanna be refreshed. You want to kind of turn off work. Uh, and some guys have to do that. I had to, you know, like I say, throw stuff to a field so I was geared up, ready to go. But when I hit home, I wanted to make sure it was wife and kids, you know, Jesus-centered, and I was going to do everything that needed to happen at that moment. And I had to work at that. I mean, I really made choices. I'd put post-it notes on my dash to remind me to make sure as I entered in because it's not easy to get into that routine, and so I do everything I can to remember. But you want to manifest your priorities, and if you don't work at it, it ain't going to happen. So that's all I'm going to say. But I mean, uh, it could be TV. It could be football. I mean, there's only one professional football team. It's the Green Bay Packers. There's only one. <laughs> but I, I, you know, over the years, I mean, I, I, still, I still have in my bucket list, I want to see a game on, at Lambeau. I do. Never seen a game of life. If you got tickets, I'm open. Okay, so um, 
I would. I'd like to see that. But I, the last time they played in the Super Bowl, I didn't watch a single game that year. I didn't watch them win. I didn't. I just, it just wasn't because I don't. It's just there's too much more that's important to me. And I, I love sports. I do. I love baseball. I love football. There's Dodgers, you know. Um, but I don't watch them anymore. I, I, I sometimes pay attention, but I'm not into the players. I gave up that one with Tommy Lasorda and Steve Garvey. That was my generation of, of Dodgers. That's way back in the ancient times when dinosaurs were still playing and stuff like that. Um, but you understand what I'm saying? I, I just, you want to be careful that anything you choose that's outside the context of what's the priority becomes an issue where it's so distracting. And this is not Jean's insistent. She never told me to give up golf, ever. She didn't tell me to stop watching the Packers. She loves watching football with me. Loves it. Loves it. Uh, we just didn't do it anymore because we had other things that were more important to us. And so I believe in refreshing. I believe in days off. I believe in, you know, whatever, you know, stirs, refreshes you truly. Life is like a, a marathon race. You know, you got to get those cup of cold water along the way to kind of refresh you along the way. And I think you need to take vacation. I think you need to take days off. Uh, I'm a big believer on vacation. Get away with your family. Listen, even if your kids hate it, they'll remember it for the rest of their life. You know what taught me about vacation? I was a college pastor at Grace Church, and I did more weddings than anybody on planet Earth. I've probably done 80 weddings. That's just at the college ministry. I mean, they were getting married right and left. I mean, it was like I, I had literally one weekend, three weddings. One weekend. And, but I, would, I, I hated weddings, the first eight of them. By the eighth one, I'm like, this is boring. I'm just changing names. It's terrible. I can't stand it. And so I invented, I did, I invented a way to do weddings that were basically would tell me their personal history, her personal history, his personal history, their testimony, and I'd weave that together. So I gave this whole history of bringing both families together, sharing the gospel twice without offense to anybody, and I could be very pointed because they were pointed to any who were present who needed to hear the truth of the gospel, got to share it twice in the context of their testimony, and I loved weddings after that. It was just a huge joy for me. But I learned something by asking them questions because I'd say, what do you remember from your childhood? Without exception, without exception, everybody named a vacation. Even the ones they hated, where dad you know, slammed them in the back seat and drove, hoping that everybody's bladder was empty, and drove until the gas tank was empty and their bladders were full. You know what I mean? And they'd go, let us out! And, but they would laugh at that then. You know, now, my kids make fun of certain vacations that we took that we thought we were doing the right thing. We called them edgevations, you know, where we took them to D.C. and showed them all kinds of stuff. And, and they're like, hey, we're on a schedule! And I'm like... It was an edgevation. Okay, it wasn't a vacation. Vacation's the beach, the mountains, whatever. This is edgevation. Uh, yeah, it was a vacation. Uh, they're all bitter in, in a joking way. Um, understand that I, I learned the priority of vacations because every kid that shared about their history, that's what they remember. And I thought, I am not going to miss that. I am not going to miss that. So I, I planned vacations. And if you don't do vacation, it's a mistake. Just even the worst, you know, go in a car and hit in a tent. You know, my wife hates dirt. But we would go and we would go three days in a tent and then there'd be a hotel so she could shower. And then three more days of dirt and bugs and then a hotel, you know. And we did that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm just saying don't miss that. I'm all, again, all for refreshment. I think we, families need that. They need to build memories and experiences and things like that. So that's really, really vital that you be involved in that and you plan that. 
I think getting away. Jesus got away with his men. He did. And they refreshed themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. Do that. That's not unspiritual. I think it's wonderful. I think you uh, learn about yourself. You learn about your kids in ways that you can't any other way. So do it. Plan on it, though. And you say, we've got a lot of money. Then do the non-vacation, you know, the not a lot of money vacation. They're, they exist. You know, borrow camping gear. We have people, we have a community website. You guys have one of those where people give free stuff away all the time at our church. It's like, it's funny. It goes, it's, oh, we got free furniture. Bam, it's gone. You know, it's just, it's just, it goes out constantly. And then if somebody goes, I need a tent or I need camping gear or anybody got a travel trailer or whatever, and then people make it available to each other. It's really fun. Um, anyway, so I, nothing wrong with video games. Just don't let them become an issue where it's hours and hours and hours. And you'll be shocked. I mean, same thing with budgeting. If you start budgeting, you're going to find out that you're spending 30 40 50 60 70 you know, dollars on coffee every month. And you're going to go, man, I, I gotta, I, I'm addicted. You know, I got an issue here. Or I'm kind of wasting a lot of money at this point that I don't have to waste. So it's just budgeting helps you to understand how you're using your time and your money. And same thing with when you begin to limit yourself, even in your times of refreshment. Long answer, I'm sorry. No, I've got several more questions here. As a father, I'm afraid of, to spank my daughter. I don't, want to, I don't want her to grow up thinking a man who says he loves me is physically hurting me. Therefore, if I date a man who physically hurts me, uh, it must be okay because like my father, he says he loves me. My wife and I have, have opposite views on spanking. How can we come together on this? Mm. Well, I would say uh, get Shepherding a Child's Heart, read the chapter on spanking. Uh, get Bruce Ray's Withhold Not Correction, which is on spanking, and uh, read those and pray about what you can do. Now, there are always exceptions, and that could be, it could be a stepdaughter, it could be a mixed marriage, it could be, there's kind of other things that contribute to this that would garner what I'm saying, but uh, your, your kids are really not going to learn who God is unless they understand discipline. Just read Hebrews 12. They need to know what it means to be disciplined by God, and they learn that when they're disciplined by their parents. And discipline, what that does is it creates this window, this scenario. Discipline is what creates the scenario when a kid finally says to himself, why can't I obey? They have to get to that point. Why can't I do the right thing? Why don't I have the ability to do this? I keep failing in this area. Why is that? Answer, you need a Savior. That's the only way they get that. So the vitality and, and vitalness of spanking, again, I'm not talking about the blended family. There's other issues. Could be an adoption. That's another scenario. Whatever. I'm not excusing anything. I just think that uh, you don't have to pull her pants down. You don't have to be weird about it. Uh, uh, you know, you can communicate discipline uh, and, and, and really having a whacker. Do you understand when I see my whacker? With somebody nod their head, they know what a whacker is. Okay, good. Uh, it's, uh, your hand is not the device. It's never the device that God uses. It's always a stick, a switch that the Bible talks about. They whip out a stick out of the tree, which is pretty severe to me. Um, anyway, a whacker is, is just a, it's a piece of conveyor belt that has a great flex. The idea is pain, not damage, you know? So, and it's not, by the way, I'm sorry to do this to you. It's not tennis, okay? It's racquetball, okay? <laughs> so understand there's a difference. You're trying to give pain, not damage. You're not trying to kill them. You're trying to inflict pain associated with disobedience. Pain equals disobedience. They have to understand that. 
And it doesn't have to be that you're messing around with their underwear at all. You can do it on the back of the thigh or whatever. It, it's, not, it's better on the bottom. And, you know, and if you're really skilled, it can be through underwear. And boy, it's good. You know, you, and, and all you have to do is spank yourself with one of those things. And you know you're delivering the goods. Okay? So all I'm saying is that I think there are ways around it. And you really need to study it, though. You need to have it come from conviction, not my words. My words mean nothing. The Scripture means everything. And you study it, Old Testament, New Testament, and you're going to go, man, I better do this. And My most parents haven't studied it. And Bruce Ray's book has every single passage in the Old and New Testament on discipline. So you can't miss it. And the single best chapter is Shepherding a Child's Heart on Discipline. Great. My wife has very specific ways she likes to do things. I try to love her by trying to do chores and other tasks for her, but she insists that she does it her way and tells me she prefers to do it herself. I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> it's just, there's a button up here. True to Chris. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. Do I love her by letting her do it herself, or no. do I love her by insisting that she let me do it for her? Uh, I think you should talk about it. I think you should figure out. You know, if she's really obsessive, uh, sometimes you can clean most of the dirt and then she can get the rest. You know what I mean? So she, she has less of a job because you did the initial job. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my daughter-in-law is worse than my wife. And um, they're, she's a, a clean maniac. I, I love them for this. I love living in a clean house, which is great. But they're cleaners. My, my wife loves laundry. No, no, no. Loves laundry. She'll go to your house go, can I do your laundry? I mean, she's crazy. She loves folding clothes. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Uh, and I've learned, this is just true, you know, I've learned from, my, from her that three things, three things, there, a lot of stuff can break in our house, no big deal. It's really no big deal. I, eventually we'll get to it, right? But three things that they break, I, I mean, I am sworn into action immediately. If 12 hours goes by and I haven't done something, I'm in big trouble. Her car, the microwave, and the washing machine must have immediate attention. I need to be on the phone with the mechanic the moment I hear. I'm talking to her. She's telling me that it broke down. I need to be on the phone right then. <laughs> Understand, I, I got that. Um, but when it comes to helping her, uh, I can still help and she can still finish the way she likes. And, and then I sometimes can learn the way she likes and, and do that too. Uh, but, but talking about it and getting to kind of an agreement on what you do and how you do it is, is really important. But you can still help her. You know, you, you can still do some of the work and then she can do the rest of it. Okay, final question. I know there is several more, but just uh, um, respectful of everyone's time here. Yep. Last question. How do you go about a situation where there is an, under, uh, quote, understanding in the marriage on said topic. However, one spouse will go to his or her family or friends with the intention of gaining support against his or her spouse. Uh, for example, yes to disagree, but not demonstrating oneness outside of the marriage circle. I think I understand that question, and, and that's appalling. Um, I want to say graciously, but, you know, the, that, the, 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 yeah. That, that, that's probably the worst thing you could do. I can't think of a worse thing, to, to get your family engaged in a disagreement between a husband and a wife. 
uh, I would get an older godly man involved in a, in a thing where I don't, I like when I go, I don't know where to go from here. I would get somebody involved, never my family. Uh, I, just, I just would not do that because it violates leave and cleave. It violates leave. Um, if, if we both agreed that we wanted to hear from grandpa so-and-so or dad because he's super godly and he's super you know, gentle in his advice and he's really an expert in this area, then, and we both wanted that, that's different. But to, for one party to go to family members to draw support into a, a disagreement between a husband and a wife, that's probably the worst thing you could do. It, it, it's, a, it's a definitive violation of leave. You just don't do it. You know, again, you can get advice. I believe in advice. I mean, you can't believe the stuff that we talked about with the Millers, with the MacArthur's, with other people, and just said, what do you do? I don't know what to do. What do we do now? You know, I, we don't know. What do we progress? What do we watch out for? We joke about it. We have fun with it, but we, with them, but we would not talk to our family unless we felt like that they were, like, in an area where they were really strong in that area, and we were getting sound biblical advice from them over that area, but both of us, not one of us, ever. We, we never took our arguments in front of the kids. You know, when we, we, I'll smile with the kids. We go in the, you know, our room and argue, you know, and we come out one, one heart, one mind, but we would never do that in front of the kids. We, we, we believe that in the church. I mean, if we disagree as elders, we struggle with that. We don't bring it to the family. We don't say, well, pick my side, pick my side. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's destructive. That's disunity. In fact, I'll take it even a step further. Uh, my kids had come home from youth ministry, and they'd go, oh, Pastor Gary, man, this is the most profound thing that I've ever learned in my entire life. This spiritual truth is changing my life. And you're in your heart saying, I've told you that five billion times. <laughs> and you know what? Not once did I ever tell Matthew or Daniel, Mark Daniel, I've told you that five billion times. I went, wow, cool, great, because they're getting, I don't care who gave it to them, I want them to get it. You understand? I want them to be like Jesus, not that they had to come from me, okay? Because that's, it's not about me, it's about the Lord making him into a man of God, right? So I'm like, yes, yes, praise God, and I'm hugging them, and that, oh, that's exciting, can't wait to see that lived out in your life. I never discourage them that way. I always say, oh, excited about this step, of the, you know, step you've made towards the Lord. Excited to see how that's going to pan out in your life. Always encouraging. And then I would go to my, ba- my bedroom privately, close the door and go, I told them that 5,000 times. Because <laughs> I'm human, you know. But it was just, I just wanted them to, you know, be excited about the truth of God's word. I don't care who they got it from. So... It's still to this day, they'll talk about stuff, and I'm like, you were raised in a home that was saturated with that, you know? But anyway, it's the way it is. You just smile and go, praise God, good. Let's have more time with the grandkids. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, thank you so much. And again, um, we, as a congregation here, we just want to say thank you, and we can do that with applause.